Welcome to Hooplecast. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me are my co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. And today we are here to talk about uh, an HBO television movie. So breaking our format from talking about pilots to talking about a movie. But I'm fond of this movie. It has Molly Parker in it, which makes uh-huh. me happy. Deadwood mm-hmm. Connection. Great mm-hmm. job, too. And overall, well, I, f- I feel like the movie has its flaws, and we'll get into it. Uh, it's an important topic. Important American history. But before we talk about that, I've got some network news. First of all, there is a new dramatic series premiering on the network tonight that I had never heard about until just this afternoon when I started to find some news articles. It's called Succession, and it sounds like it's a mix of King Lear and uh, media empires like the Murdoch family. So I'm going to read the description now. In the new HBO series Succession, premiering Sunday, Brian Cox plays Logan Roy, a lion-in-winter media tycoon with a succession problem. Logan's heir, apparent, is his son Kendall, a recovering drug addict. Also in the mix, his misanthropic son Roman, still sulking that he wasn't handed the keys to Dad's movie studio, and daughter Siobhan, the apple of Logan's eye, if only she wasn't channeling her daddy issues into democratic machine politics. As the pilot begins, Logan is dreading two things. Pasturehood and the related imminent gathering of his extended family for his 80th birthday. The celebration plays out more like a U.S.-Korea pre-summit with comic relief provided by Logan's firstborn son, Connor, a new-age ne'er-do-well, and a surprise guest in Cousin Greg, who, suffice to say, personifies everything that's wrong with millennials. Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, is a satirist at heart. After writing acclaimed British sitcoms, Peep Show, The Thick of It, He moved on to satirical movies about the Anglo-American run-up to the Iraq War in The Loop and would-be terrorists, Four Lions. Some years ago, Armstrong wrote a screenplay about the inter-familial tumult in the house of Rupert Murdoch. The script never produced became a hot Hollywood property. So I've seen some advanced reviews of it. They're mixed, but generally more favorable than the last new show that the network launched here and now, which had like 23% of Rotten Tomatoes and was canceled after one season. So... So this this is a series, not a movie. It's a new series, and it starts tonight. And I have yeah never heard of it. Like it has no buzz, and uh, but but it's got Brian Cox. Yeah, Brian Cox. He's so good. He is. Hmm. And I want to know what this character who's who. I mean, he's Jack Langrish. <laughs> I want to know what this. And Hannibal. Yeah. Yes. I want to know what this character that encompasses all millennials is. Mm. <laughs> I'm curious. Like what. What is what is he killing? Is he killing? I don't know. Napkins is that's one of the things that millennials have ended the need for napkins because we just all use paper towels. Yeah, millennials have ruined avocados for everybody. Mm-hmm. Avocado <laughs> toast. <laughs> yeah. We could afford houses if we didn't keep buying that avocado uh, toast. Yeah, I mean, come on, Sears <laughs> department stores. <laughs> Yeah. We could afford the house that we're living in right now if we didn't stop <laughs> buying avocados all together. Yeah. Westworld was renewed for season three, which is not a surprise. The first season estimated 13.2 million viewers per episode across all its platforms. Season one was uh, on par ratings wise with Game of Thrones. Uh, that that seems a little hard to believe, uh, but it did gain, garner 22 Emmy nominations, ultimately won five. I watched the premiere of season two, and I haven't watched any since then because I thought the premiere was pretty awful. And you can hear all my thoughts about it on the bonus podcast that I uh, <laughs> that I did with Stephen Laurel. So look that up. Um, 
I've heard it gets better uh, as the season is going. I think they've done like five or six episodes now, but it's it's just a show that I wish I liked more because I like so much about it. But structure wise, it's a mess. Watchmen. We talked about this before. Damon Lindelof wrote this impassioned letter to fans on the internet. Uh, sorry, fans of, of the graphic novel of the of the franchise. Uh, in his letter, he like professed his love for the source material, saying like, "I, I know that the creator of the co- of the comic or the graphic novel doesn't want any adaptations, uh, but I just can't help myself." <laughs> wow, he just has to dip his hands into it. He he feels like a calling, like a spiritual calling, but he's not going to adapt adapt it like. Uh, story beat for story beat rather he's gonna create something new in the universe not just retelling the old material uh he says those original 12 issues are our old testament when the new testament came along it did not erase what came before it the story will be set in the world its creators painstakingly built but in the tradition of the work that inspired it this new story must be original some of the characters will be unknown new faces new masks to cover them whoa that's pretty ballsy wolves I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? It's a superhero world, right? So just tell different stories in that world. Like, and make, why not? Like, it, it could work. Uh, they tried to do that with the Dark Tower movie. I never saw that movie because it got such terrible reviews, but that failed. Maybe this will be better. I mean, Lindelof, I believe, after the Lost Finale and Prometheus, totally redeemed himself with the leftovers. So uh-huh. he, he gets a free pass. And also, the cast is really cool. Regina King of the Leftovers. Don Johnson, Tim Blake Nelson, Louis Gossett Jr. It's a real good cast. I just, I I don't know. I mean, to say, oh, I know that the original author doesn't want this done, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. And by the way, I'm going to compare myself to writing the New Testament. Mm, it's a very <laughs> navel-gazy letter. It's really... Uh, it's also extremely um, self-congratulatory. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean... I mean, it's, you know, he obviously thinks well of himself. I hope he has, can back it up. I, I know nothing of Watchmen, honestly. I mean, I mean, I know that it's like a deconstruction of the superhero mythology and, le- you know, whatever. Like, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't understand why things have to keep be, be remade. You know what I mean? Like, so soon. Like, the Watchmen movie was is not that old. Like... It's probably ten years old now. Spider-Man. I don't know. Sp- Spider-Man. Spider-Man has been uh, <laughs> rebooted twice in. Uh, yeah. In the past couple decades or whatever. And to me, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, there's mm. there's other superheroes that are like left on the table. Like we keep remaking Spider-Man and <laughs> making Wolverine movies. Um, what about all the other mutants and superheroes? When are we gonna get to them? There's like a thousand of them. I just think that this, like, they just really push those stories, like, they're just really, like, when it comes to, like, superhero stuff, they really stretch out the storylines, like, way too far, and it's, like, for me personally, I find it so exhausting to keep up with all of it, you know? Well, Marvel I mean, is The Watchmen desperate. is not really like that, it's not like a, like, a property that keeps, like, expanding itself all the time, but... It is now. Is it? There's new Watchmen comics. I had no idea. In the past couple of years. Yeah, I'd read something about a clockwork something, and that was like the name of it. And they said that's this is kind of like that, which is like it's a story set in the Watchmen universe. I love Batman the animated series. I used to watch that all the time. And yes. 
I don't remember all of those stories being like adaptations from comic books. I think some of those were original stories just set in the universe. And it, oh, I'm think, sure they were. Yeah. I was, think most of them it, were. Most of them were, and it was great. Yes, it was. So it was if this is a live action Batman the animated series, like that kind of thing, I would be completely okay with that. I would love to see something like that. Just hire Paul Dini then. <laughs> yes. I I wish they would remake the Dark Tower, uh, even though they just made it. Like to Mel's point, like you just made it. N- no, that was terrible. Make it he again wasn't wearing, right away. <laughs> Make it he again. wasn't wearing he wasn't wearing his hat. It wasn't right. <laughs> the gunslinger needs a hat. Do it over. We talked about Lovecraft Country before. This is another genre TV show in the pipeline. I'll remind you what the description is. Adapted from the novel by, well, the novel is by a a guy named Matt Ruff, I believe. Uh, But Jordan Peele, who just won the best original screenplay for Get Out, is adapting his novel. Uh, The story follows Atticus Black as he joins up with his friend Letitia and his uncle George to embark on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father. This begins a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from an H.P. Lovecraft paperback. Only time will tell what ghoulish demon lurks in the dark for our trio as they traverse America. And will those horrors be worse than the racism and inequality they discover? So I bring this up again. Because we got some casting news. Uh, Jonathan Majors will play Atticus. I don't know who that is, but he's been in stuff recently. But more importantly to me, Journey Smollett-Bell will play Letitia Dandridge, the artist protesting civil rights who goes on the road trip. And um, Journey Smollett-Bell, I hope that's I'm saying her name correctly, I first knew her as the little girl in Eve's Bayou. Did you guys see ever see that movie? Mm-hmm. No. No. Oh, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful, like... Southern Gothic kind of movie of a African American family. Uh, the daughter catches her father, played by Samuel L. Jackson, having like a tryst with another woman, uh, and she like curses him, and her father huh? gets like killed some way. I want to say I don't know. He gets hit by a car, a truck, a train. I don't. I don't remember. Uh, and then she sort of like rustles, rustles with the uh, like. I don't know. There's like a voodoo element to it. There's like a supernatural element, but it's really just like a southern gothic family drama with some really great actors um from quite a while ago but i really recommend recommend that film uh Was that, like a kid like on like tgif as well or like yeah she, show or something i think she was on was she on full house was i feel she, like she was on the cosby show or maybe something else i know the name is so familiar it might have even been family matters i don't know I'm going to look it up because she was definitely yeah. in one of the TGIF shows. Yeah. Yeah. Full House. She played Denise. Oh, okay. Then, but then she was on Cosby. She was. She, she was on Cosby, not the Cosby show. Mm, okay. I don't yeah. know. I can't remember the difference. Yeah. What, what did she play on Cosby? Uh, she played a human. A human. <laughs> named Journey. Same name as her own name. Maybe she played oh. herself. Maybe. Why was there another Cosby show? There were a lot of Cosby shows. That is weird. There was Cosby Mysteries as well. Well, There's a lot of women to molest. (laughs) There's a lot of work to do. She was on Friday Night Lights, 26 episodes. What did she play on Friday Night Lights? A human. She played Jess Merriweather. (laughs) Jess Merriweather. Oh, was that? Hang on. I think that was Vince's, like, friend, girlfriend. It would have been the later seasons. Hmm. I... I kind of forgotten a lot of the later season 
parts. And uh, she had a recurring part on True Blood, but played a really terrible character on True Blood. Anyway. Okay, that's who I thought she was. Okay. A human? Was it Hitler? It was a human. It was a human? Okay. Right. It was a human who wanted to be a werewolf. I remember that. Like, she was, like, super into werewolf culture. You know, werewolf culture? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. The werewolf <laughs> music. The werewolf food. It's invading everywhere. Mm-hmm. Just like millennials. <laughs> what, we've re- what we've really got to watch out for is cultural appropriation of werewolf culture. <laughs> <laughs> And then my last bit of nudes, news, nudes, nudes. This podcast is getting exciting. I was I was flipping through um, photos. I was flipping through photos of uh, True Blood, and like most of the cast is nude in that show. Like most of the time, <laughs> that's probably how I made the connection. Uh, Deadwood, the Deadwood movie. There's still no green light for the film, but HBO applied for a tax credit in California, which indicates that the network has full intention of making the movie. It means that the network has finished the, the script and they have financing in place, so they have, meet the requirements for the tax benefit application. Uh, according to the California Film Commission, a film or TV series generally has to start principal photography within 180 days of being approved for the tax credit to receive it, though sometimes special exceptions are made. This could mean that the Deadwood film would start filming in the beginning of October. I still don't believe it's going to happen. Or it could just mean that they applied for the tax credit and they get it and then they don't use it. So... No, nope, it's not going to happen. It's not real till I see it. Yeah, I I feel that way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's a little bit of news. <clears throat> okay, so someone has to recap this movie in 60 seconds. No. <laughs> and all of our names are on a, uh, a wheel. Uh, I'm an app on my phone, which I'm slowly bringing up now. Except it just asked me about ads and privacy policies and things, because everything requires a privacy policy to be updated. I bet you read all all the pages, don't you? Oh, I quit my job, so all I, all I do is read privacy policies all day. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Matt, you have 60 seconds. <laughs> I got to mansplain it to the you ladies. Mansplain <laughs> Carol. Yeah. This yeah. is a challenge for you. Remember, if you go over sixty seconds, you are a loser, and if you go ridiculously under, then you are a chump. Oh. You're some sort of chump. A mansplaining chump. A mansplaining yeah. chump. Yeah. No. All right. And count of three. One. Count me. Two. Three. Ah, there's ladies, and they want to buy a hat. And they buy that hat. It looks stupid. And then, then, uh, yeah, we find out that they're, like, fighting for rights. But they're not doing it in the old-fashioned, polite way. They're making waves. uh, So they have to leave their old organization and they create their own. And they piss off a lot of people. They get shit thrown at them. They have parades with people on horses in ridiculous costumes. Some of them work too hard and end up dying. Um, <laughs> uh, they they uh, keep pushing it till they're eventually thrown in jail, and they do a hunger strike. And uh, generally, things move very fast. The opening says it's 1912, and then at the end, only at the end did I realize many years had gone by when it said 1920. Hillary Swank doesn't age. Oh, yeah, none of them age. Um, Sorry. And. Uh, yeah, in the end, uh, they convince 
the president to give them the vote. This whole thing was about getting the vote. I didn't mention that. Yeah, done. Uh, one minute, 15 seconds. Ah. It was the stuff about the hats. <laughs> Not really integral to the story. It's they, really They integral. made it feel like it was. Yeah, we kept, we kept noticing the hats all the time. Well, we she kept... even, like, found the hat that was missing. Yeah, the, right hat before. Is, the hat is, like, it's a part of it. It's the MacGuffin. Mm. It, it, it is a distraction because I think the point of the hat is a, so that when she has the hat and takes it off and, and literally lets her hair down in front of the, the gentleman caller, uh, mm. it's, it, it's a real sexy moment because the, the hat's off. <laughs> but I like hats. I like hats as costumes. So I was happy to uh, to see a, just these a fuck ton of hats. Like, just these hats look like diapers, some of them. <laughs> that was not a great hat. Angelica Houston <laughs> had an awesome hat. hat. Yeah, the main hat was ugly. <laughs> I'm just kind of curious as to whether Alice Paul was known for having a particular hat that she wore all the time. And that's why, you know, it was... Well, I'm looking at a picture of Alice Paul and the hat she's wearing... Actually, she looks a lot like one of the other actresses. I don't remember what character she was playing. But uh, the hat she's wearing looks a whole lot more interesting than the one that... Well, looks like she had a bunch of different hats. <laughs> she was a hat lady. <laughs> well, they everybody wore hats, you know, back then. You weren't dressed if you didn't have a hat on. Yeah, there's a, there's a, um, a picture from the early 1900s hanging up in one of the buildings here in my hometown and there's about three four hundred people in the photo and i looked for a long time and i couldn't find a single person not wearing a hat Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean up until (laughs) you know the 60s um it was considered you know part of being dressed to wear a a hat Mm -hmm. in the 60s that uh that that was that kind of went away in a big way so did you guys feel I felt this way about like documentary, well, not documentary, but historical based shows or movies before. You just feel that it just like it moves too fast. You lose some context. Things are just like referred to as having happened or relationships change like in the course of just a couple scenes mm-hmm. or you see or you see somebody they're one way. You don't see them for a very long time. And then the next time you see them, their situation is completely different. Yeah, but I mean, they this went over the course of eight years, so I really wish they had said that. Yeah. There was only like two time stamps at the no, beginning. No, there was a no. There was a 1912. There was a 1916. Oh. I didn't see another one, and then there was 1920. Oh, okay. So there may have been one in between that I missed. They no, needed I wrote them all down. They did mention the war and stuff, which kind of moves it forward. Yeah, they mentioned the war, and I'm like, but it's 1912. What war was that? <laughs> and then, then only later did I realize that they had, at that point, they were probably moved ahead in time and talking about the beginning of the First World War. Uh, 1916 happened, I believe it was, uh, remember when they started the National Women's Party? That was around 1916, from mm. from my notes. Um, it was somewhere right in there, the 1916 thing. Yeah, it's just like things like Molly Parker's character like coming in and basically like leaving in a huff after she's like told that she's like... You know, the worst kind of woman or whatever. <laughs> that That is a strange leap because she does kind of get told off. And then, and then the next time she's, you see her, it's, she's, it's, yeah, she's oh, back into the, the mix of things. Yeah, the next yeah. time you see her, I think, is when, like, her allowance gets taken away and she's been giving it, a, giving it to them for months. 
Could there I have been a scene that... in the middle where where he they, where... Make, they make up or something? No, where like her husband treated her the way that um, Alice Paul said that. Yeah, you know, like like it. She had an aha moment, but did we did we get that scene? I don't remember. No, we didn't. No, That's we didn't. Using. I mean, I had just assumed that it was one of those things that um, because she was living that life. You know, it was something that she just couldn't ignore. And just because she'd been insulted, it made her her back off, but then quietly just contribute from afar as opposed to going there where she might be insulted. You see the paper. The National Woman's Party is traveling west by train. Well, they will embark on a speaking campaign urging women voters to vote against the Democrats in this election who oppose a federal amendment. Noted contributors to this effort include Mrs. Thomas Layton. I used my housekeeping allowance, that's all. It has nothing to do with you. Emily, I'm a Democratic senator. You're my wife. It's got everything to do with me. You'll withdraw your membership. They count on my monthly contributions. I've closed your account. You can charge at the grocers, and the bills will be sent to my office. So, while we're on the subject of Molly Parker, um, who plays Emily Layton, the senator's wife, she just this role reminds me a lot of Alma in the sense that she's the wife of privilege, and she's expected to be kept silent, and yet finds a place to maneuver. Mm. She also has, uh, she doesn't have the opiate problem, but she's got, like, a flowing robe that looks like she came out of an opium den. <laughs> style at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I really didn't like how the film was edited, or the, the music they put in there. I don't know about you guys. Uh, yeah, the music was a little distracting because it was, um, modern. Yeah. yeah. And the editing was modern. It's kind, it's kind of like they were trying to make it really cool. Mm-hmm. I was reading reviews on it, and I'm going to read a couple here that I I agree with their their uh, criticisms. Um, Rod, uh, Richard Roper actually uh, said, um, "No, sorry, this is Scott Fundas. <laughs> He's saying uh, HBO starry suffragette drama Iron Jawed Angels." Lashes onto a worthy historical subject and then hopes noble intentions will be enough to carry the day. Alas, there's no such luck in this talky, melodramatic over the overview of the dawn of equal rights for women in America. Gussied up with comically ana- anachronistic use of period music on the soundtrack and flashy MTV-style montage sequences, uh, it mis- misguidingly strives but ultimately fails to belie its instincts as an assembly line movie of the week. <laughs> And then Robert Party uh, says, of TV Guide, says, uh, all the elements for a splendid film about the early days of women's rights are in place, but director Katia von Garnier's use uh, of distracting cinematic trickery and jarringly modern music meshes poorly with the period setting. Blessed with flawless physical production, um, von Garnier distorts her epic tale with music that belongs on a Lilith Fair tour. It sometimes <laughs> feels sometimes feels as though she and her writers conceived the fight for women's suffrage as a 1912 version of Sex in the City. Only when the anachronis- anachronisms finally subside 
in the film's final third is the moving core allowed to shine. Mm-hmm. And that I agree with that. I, I greatly enjoyed the uh, final third more than the rest of it. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's almost like the movie's in two halves, and it, and right after, like, I don't think it's a third. I think it's really like at the right when Inez dies, and then it sort of like quiets down, and then they have to recalibrate yeah. who they are, and they decide, okay, we're gonna go picket, and we're gonna go, and then and then they go to the picketing of the White House, and then they get arrested, and imprisoned and go through the hunger strike and all of that stuff like all that back half of the movie uh is so much stronger than the front half which is loaded with some really like weird editing things like fast fast moving camera through like a street and all kinds of all kinds of weird camera things and editing things i don't really mind the music i i feel like the music is the thing that stands out the most but it's not the, the problem it's the the camera trickery, which it's subsides. The montage. It's the montages. So many montages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably because they are trying to c- compress so much history into two hours. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a lot of it. I, you know, but when you're talking about you know anachronistic stuff and all, I did not when it first started the opening credits or whatever, and they were having a montage. It did not hit me. It like I had forgotten what this was about. And so it was going through and it had flashes of women's and girls faces and stuff like this. And when it finished and the, it began and all of a sudden we had a 1912 car and September 1912 up on the screen. I was like, huh? (laughs) Because I had really gotten the feeling from the opening credits that this was modern day. Mm hmm. So right there, it started with with that jarring kind of a a problem. Once they got into it, I didn't have that big a problem with it. But I agree with you. I I did notice the music being out of place and uh, and a lot of the little montage things. I really didn't see the point of a stout old maid with facial hair, <laughs> Carrie Nation waving her axe. That's what people think of when you say suffragist. So NASA fights it with Madonna and Child. Women who nurture the family, rock the baby, serve the dinner, Aww. serve society, serve, serving, serve society, serving, serving, always serving. serving. But the new suffragist is single, young, independent, Educated. and very, very beautiful. She's you. On a horse. A cowgirl. A warrior. A herald. Uh-uh. Joan of Arc with 10,000 women following her down Pennsylvania. And I knew a woman oh. who can lead us up the mountain. Mm-mm. Or off a cliff. No. So I'm wondering if part of the the use of the, the modern style. It's, it was modern then. Now it feels kind of like 90s-ish. Um, yeah, and very, music, very dated in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if part of that is because of uh, there's a particular line of Alice Paul when Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are talking to Inez at that club or restaurant, whatever it was. Um, and they said, you know, women are, they're not just like hatchet faced crones or whatever she says, like women with stout old maid with facial hair, that they're sexy and young. And, and is the music and the styling, like, is the movie trying to do exactly what the women did, which is, take something that seems kind of passe and old fashioned and, and say, see, it can be sexy and colorful. Mm -hmm. And look, we have characters that like men, 
Like, there's a relationship. See, they're not not all feminists. Feminists and suffragists hate men. Mm-hmm. Even though I was looking at like the the real historical people, and most of them never married. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, I, that could be there, that might not be their fault. It might be men being scared of them. <laughs> well, there was good reason. Susan B. Anthony like laid it out really specifically, and that is. Um, women at the time had two choices. Mm-hmm. If they married, they were either going to be a drudge because they were going to sp- have very little economic means, which means that they were going to spend all day and all night uh, cooking and cleaning and taking care of children and taking care of a house, um, which was not like it is now. I mean, it was laundry day was, you know, laundry from morning till night and stuff i mean it was these jobs took forever so you were either a drudge or an ornament and the ornament was the upper class women who were expected to mind their place and be ornamental and not be controversial and do what their husbands said and not embarrass them or they could end up just as they wanted her to end up um committed to a mental facility for life because they were an embarrassment or they didn't know their place. They're hysteric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was not an unusual thing to have happen. That, really, that was held over a woman's head. I really you liked know? the, uh, the psychiatrist or whatever, who, who thankfully was a rational, reasonable guy. <laughs> I can't remember, yeah. the exact, can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about, yeah, courage. Uh, uh, I, happen to have, I happen yeah. to have it. um let's see in women courage is often mistaken for insanity yeah that was a good quote i wonder if that was written for this or that's taken from somewhere Uh, i could check it out um sounds familiar it sounds like a familiar quote but that was literally the reason that susan b anthony gave for you know not getting married was because there was it's a trapping it and a trap yeah if just like when Alice Paul said that if you're alone, you have a choice. And at the time, you figure when a woman married, she basically became the property of her husband. Mm-hmm. She really had no rights at all. That's why when, when, she was, when he was saying, oh, I'm taking your children away, and she says, you can't take my children. He says, what are, basically, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Which was the whole point of suffrage. Women couldn't be on juries. Women couldn't... Um, they had no rights at all, and they had no way of getting any rights. So a woman could be put away and, you know, just on the say-so of her husband. And she needed her husband's permission to do anything. She needed to open a bank account. She needed her husband's signature. Mm-hmm. There was no opening a bank account in your own name or anything like that. They were wanted- Right. They were children. They were, they were, they were chattel, like, <laughs> like Molly Parker said. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and basically treated as children. Where are the girls? I had Mrs. Quinn take them to my mother's to free you up. I know how busy you are with all your suffrage activities. People saw you and Jenny at the suffrage trial. I don't know what kind of mother takes an 11-year-old to a district courthouse. Did you give her a look at the jail, too? I'll go and get them after breakfast. No, you won't. You leave them be. 
I don't know a judge in this district who would give you custody right now. You won't take my children. How will you stop me? Can you afford an attorney? An attorney? To prove what? That I'm their mother? And what will your judge say? That this is your house? Your house and your children? What am I to you, Tom? What am I then in your house, chattel? This is how you punish me? I'm their mother! They are not your children to take! Well, the fact that it showed all this was 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 nice that they they brought that up. But I was very disappointed how glossed over the uh, the plight of the African American woman was. Mm. Mm. So you guys have touched but, upon like three different things that I've researched and would love to, to share okay. some some fun facts about. Um, yeah. First, well, first of all, this is this is not a. Fun fact. This is just an observation. The doctor who was trying to probe if Alice Paul had a persecution complex or any kind of degree of insanity, like that, that's such a scary, like he kept saying, but you blame the president, right? Like he puts you here, right? Yeah. And, you know, she was able to fortunately coherently say, no, the office, like the laws put me here. And, and I, and we're protesting not the president, but the, the office of the president, like, yeah. Though it was amazing with, with her condition and what they did to her, that she was able to have like say that so coherently. Yeah. Though that's why that she was, was very. That she go ahead. She was very what? Oh, that she was um she was very slow and exact in her meaning, so that she didn't misspeak and and so he couldn't use it against her. But yeah. uh, not knowing where the doctor stood, it was really scary because you think he's setting her up so that she would trap herself in something. That's what it seems like. And I really like how clearly she enunciated everything. Like she made it really clear as to why she shouldn't have to explain herself, you know, because it should be obvious to everybody that this is, I want the same things that you do. She definitely dodged all those landmines that probably could have, could have put her in the asylum for life. She was so smart. I really admired that that character in that moment. Like that was probably my favorite moment of the whole. That was a great scene by Hilary Swank. And I'm just looking at the uh, awards and accolades and all the things it was nominated for. And the only things that won like actor wise was two, uh, two awards for Angelica Houston. And I was like, she barely did anything. Yeah. This is it's her name. It's because of her name. Yeah. 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 And like, she's the only one who got, she wasn't the main character who sure. got any accolades for this. And like, I've seen her do like a version of this character many times. Right. Yes. <laughs> staunch. Yeah. The staunch character. Uh, so yeah. In the, uh, in the oval office, the, I think it's the psychiatrist who says, I you know, give me liberty or give me death. Like that's what she's, that's the hill she's dying on. That's what Patrick Henry, an American hero, said. And then the guy with the shockingly orange hair is like, <laughs> apples and oranges. And I'm like, you should talk about oranges? Your hair is, like, radioactive. <laughs> uh, hey. Anyway. What? Hey. Hey, hey. My dad was a redhead. Aww, <laughs> well, this wasn't a redhead. This guy Come was, on. like, a bottle redhead. <laughs> Yeah, I think he probably was. It was but. it was kooky. And I mean Frances O'Connor, she had some hair too, but at least they commented on it. When when she said, How's my hair? And she's like, Well it's like orange or red. She's red. Yeah, she looked like a clown. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I, it was also No, enough. really. I mean come on. Five out of uh, let's see, counting the ones who died. Um four out of seven of 
you know, my father and his siblings were bright, bright redheads. You know, I this is not this is not a terrible thing at all. You're a redhead racist, man. <laughs> yes. So, some Lay of my best friends redhead. are redheads. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, the uh, the love interest. Um, the, would it not surprise you or surprise you to know that uh, that character, that political cartoonist played by Patrick Dempsey, is not a real person? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> so, th- I mean, this whole that whole plot took up what twenty minutes of the movie that could have been spent on much better things. Um, do we really need that scene in which Alice Paul learns to drive? Do we no. need any of the scenes with her and that dude that amounted to nothing? I guess, but the bathtub <laughs> masturbation. The funniest one was the bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, really. That, so that I mean, show like, hey, she's still a woman. It, I think it's yeah, to, sh- to show, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's to, to yeah. sex it up. I think it's to show that she's not uh, that old maid with facial hair. That she's a, a, a woman. She just wants rights. It doesn't mean that she's suddenly a man. Like there's some quotes that I found while researching this, where the men were like, "Where's your skirt? Like you're not a woman because you have like a brain." And this is right. like, she has a brain. And she's a woman. See? Like, they can coexist in a single person. Um, right. But I feel like... And that was a great moment when she's in the in the tub and Lucy Burns comes in and she says, you know, yeah, I like the guy, but his son deserves a mother. And until I have accomplished, achieved what I need to, I just... It would be unfair to them to to be, you know, to put them second. This is, this is what I want to do. This is... I'm putting this first. But I feel like they could have gotten to that moment without the 25 minutes of cute dating stuff. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, I I really felt like that was pandering to, you know, the part of the audience that always says, well, you know, feminists, as you say, feminists hate men. Feminists are all lesbians. Feminists are, you know, this, that, and the other thing and just want to pigeonhole everybody. Instead of uh, feminists just want to be equal citizens <laughs> in the country, I kind of take, take a little bit of offense to like people being like, "Oh, like old maids with like what's wrong with an old maid with facial hair? What's wrong with that?" <laughs> That's useful. Yeah, I want to be that well, old that, maid. That, that, <laughs> you're absolutely right, and I did find I did take a little umbrage to that. I must admit, when they said that, yeah. it was like, "Really, girls?" Well. But in a way, that's there's two things there that I'm glad you so glad you brought that up, Mel. Uh, <laughs> I really am because I I'd kind of forgotten about it. But um, you know, that's that's constantly with feminists and everything right through the '60s and all of that. You know, it's always attacking women's looks and oh, they're feminists because you can't get a man because look how ugly they are and not all that kind of nonsense. Um, and, also, and it also attacks. The fact that if you don't have a baby, you have no worth. Right, right. You know, or Absolutely. if you don't get married, you have no worth. Basically, right. that's 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 sometimes that's how people make me feel because I don't have children. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, why? When are you having? Like, you should have a baby. You'll feel much happier in your life. You know, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Not necessarily. It depends yeah. on what makes you happy. I know, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and the other thing is, I mean. In a way, them saying that brought two things up in my head. One was, oh, yeah, the egotism of youth, mm. um, because there's always a lot of that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you always have the young women who are like, oh, well, you know, you don't, you can't possibly know how I, you know, give me advice because you're so old and you couldn't possibly relate to me and, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And then there was the other thing of that they've taken this, this stuff into their beings, the, this derogatory um, vision of women that, you know, you've got to be young and pretty to be worth anything. And, um, or as you say, you know, a, a mother and then you still, I mean, if you're a mother, well, then they can kind of put you down for that. You yeah. know, it's, it's no, no matter what you do, there's the exactly they'll criticize and it's never good exactly. enough. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's one of those things you can't win for losing as my mom used to say. Yeah. But, uh, but that when, when she was, you know, when she was saying that about, you know, the way people looked at the older suffragettes and it's like, yeah, you're, this isn't how the older suffragettes or you should be judged at, yet you're buying into it because that's, the society that we're all still being raised in. So is the move is the movie with its editing and its music and its sex and bathtub masturbation and romance <laughs> and learning to drive a car is that is that failing to under like is that hypocrisy or is that like leaning into it and say in sort of like on a meta level like this is how we had to make the movie because we're still in this. I'd say probably both. I mean. I get needing to put that into the movie, but at the same time, especially the amount of it that they put in the movie seems cowardly. Yeah, it's definitely for me. That's the most distracting, like uh, worst part of this uh, is that whole like unnecessary relationship. Because I'm, I was reading, uh, researching this all this history, and there are things that they could have put in the, the story that to take a you know to use for the screen time that would have been far more interesting to see um to matt's point we could have had more about the the issue of african-american women Mm -hmm. yeah i'm told you expect negro women to march in a separate unit at the back southern suffrage groups threaten to withdraw are the ladies afraid we'll march out of step call their bluff we can't afford to lose their support not with the democrats in office who's we Women or just white women? Now, wait a minute. We have one agenda. Suffrage. Add another issue. If we don't stand up now, what happens to Negro women when you finally get the vote? They'll keep us out of the polling place any way they can. Other colored groups have agreed to the compromise. Not perfect, but we got to be practical. Dress up prejudice and call it politics? I expected more from a Quaker. I'll march with my peers or not at all. I understand. So the woman who comes into the office uh, and says, you know, I hear you want us to march at the back. I expected better of a Quaker. Right. That woman is Ida Wells Barnett. She was a journalist, outspoken suffragette, and anti-lynching crusader. She founded the Alpha Suffrage Club of Chicago, the first African-American women's suffrage organization. Yeah. And then, like, the main character of this show is like, yeah, that'd be nice, but sorry, no dice. <laughs> which like, is actually, which is actually historically accurate, though. 
Yeah, I, I understand yes, that. It is historically accurate. What's probably and, not is the little smile at the end, like, hey, they found a way to get in the parade, which actually did happen. That, But there was only, like, one or two. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, wanted the, a whole crowd of them and jump in there. <laughs> well, the entire parade looks so much smaller than it actually was. It, yeah, it was huge. It was huge. Yeah. I'm, I was just surprised that that, that lady's storyline was basically dropped from there. I think she appeared one more time, maybe. But if I remember correctly, black there was a group of black women who did march at the end of the parade. Uh, um, yeah, I okay. did see. So I did see. Here's some. Oh, you mean like you recall in the movie seeing it? Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, there was. You could I see just just the one like flash that you saw. Like okay, I just recall it from history. Um, um, well, you would be correct. So I've got some facts here. Uh, Alice Paul, a white woman, was convinced that other white women would not march with black women. In response to several inquiries, she had quietly discouraged blacks from participating. She confided her fears to a sympathetic editor. As far as I can see, we must have a white procession, or a Negro procession, or no procession at all. If Paul had had her druthers, there would have been no black marchers. But just days before the parade, she became more receptive to the possibility. What brought matters to a head was a letter from Nellie M. Quander, a schoolteacher and Howard graduate who said that Howard women wanted to take part. Usually prompt to reply, Paul took a week to respond. She suggested Quander call the headquarters of their parent organization, the National American Suffrage Association. Records do not reflect a meeting. Complaints of discrimination reached the association, which wired orders to to permit black marchers. Paul had no choice. Representing the sorority in negotiations, uh, they agreed that the the Delta Association sorority would march next to the New York delegation. So they finally did march. Uh, I feel like the movie has a bit of a cheat when they step into the march, which did happen. And you see Alice Paul give a smile, kind of like like a you-go-girl kind of smile, when I feel like in real life she either would have had a negative reaction or no reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a slight mention later on um, of some of the stuff that brought, that was part of the reason for all of that, um, a lot of it had to do, from my understanding, is that uh, because of what had happened in the Civil War and right after the Civil War, there was a certain number of women who were like, you know, we're we're gonna do this and do this our way and get it done, and um, and that had to do with the fact that the Susan B. Anthony and um, Katie Stanton and so forth had put aside, and we've talked about this before, they put aside the fight for suffrage on the understanding that they would fight for abolition of slavery, which they had been fighting for anyway. But they would put aside the fight for slavery, concentrate on the abolitionist movement. And once the war was over and slavery was abolished, everybody, including the, all the male abolitionists would work for universal suffrage and get women the vote and black men the vote and black women the vote and everybody the vote. And they betrayed, they were betrayed by uh, the male abolitionists who said, sorry, you really should just wait because it's more important that male, that um, black males get the right to vote. So uh, we're putting you aside because we might not be able to get the right to vote if we work for you to get the right to vote. And, you know, you'll just have to wait a little while. And, of course, they had to wait uh, 50 years, and they were all dead by the time they got the right to vote. Mm. So 
that kind of hung over the whole movement. I've got more notes about the parade itself. Leading the way from the Capitol to the Treasury Department was a horse-drawn float bearing a banner that read, We demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States in franchising the women of the country. It would be followed by more floats, nine bands, four mounted brigades, three heralds with trumpets, and somewhere between 5,000 and 8,000 women. Organized in two months by Alice Paul, a driven young Quaker, the Capitol's first suffrage parade was timed to put pressure on Woodrow Wilson on the day before his inauguration. The violence erupted minutes after the parade began. The crowd broke through the steel cables and spilled into the street. Men, many of them drunk, spit at the marchers, <laughs> grabbed their clothing, hurled insults, and lighted cigarettes. Uh, I'm assuming, like, flew, like, flung lit cigarettes at them. Snatched banners, tried to climb floats. Police did not keep order, observed one of Paul's supporters. I did not know men could be such fiends. Watching women of all classes parading down public thoroughfares demanding voting rights was disturbing to many men and even some women, including initially moderate suffragettes. Carrie Chapman Catt, for example, declined to participate in a 1909 parade, saying, we do not have to win sympathy by parading ourselves like the street cleaning department. Ugh. Yeah, I hate the way people people act at things like that. When, just like, don't go. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> Just don't go. Why ruin somebody yeah. else's good time? Yeah, like... Like, it doesn't affect you. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe they think it does. Like, oh, my wife will start thinking for herself. But Yeah, like, they think about it the way heterosexuals think about gay marriage. Like, it invalidates my marriage somehow. Yeah, yeah. I still love the quote, when you're used to uh, privilege, equality feels like oppression. <laughs> That's a, gr- a great quote, yeah. I have no idea where it came from. Me but. neither, but I've heard it, and it makes so much sense. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, were missing from the movie, or they, I mean, they could have put this in, but we had to watch her drive a car. Um, a critical <laughs> component of the first natu- national suffrage parade on March 3rd, 1913 in Washington, D.C., was the elaborate tableau, the allegory, produced by pageant designer Hazel McKay. Through sheer persistence and moxie, Alice Paul secured permission from government officials to use the grand steps of the Treasury Building during working hours to mount a feminist pageant. The performance included a hundred classically costumed women and children representing ideals such as freedom, justice, peace, charity, liberty, and hope, as well as outstanding female historical figures, including Sappho, Joan of Arc, and Elizabeth of England. More than 20,000 people reportedly watched the pageant, including a reporter from the New York Times, who gushed that it was one of the most impressively beautiful spectacles ever staged in this country. I would have liked to have seen that. I'll bet you I know why they didn't do it. Why? Because I've seen pictures and stuff of those kinds of pageants that were incredibly popular at that time, and they look ridiculous to us now. I get it. Yeah. Just like you were saying, who? But you put modern pop music in it, and suddenly it's not. (laughs) It's not so ridiculous. A little Sarah McLachlan, and you're like, oh, that's pretty hip. Yeah, a little bit of um, uh, gauze on the lens to make it. Very surreal looking. But um, when you were saying about silly costumes before, Matt, mm-hmm. multiply that by a whole big group. And they were very into like the flowy white uh, gauzy dresses and doing, you know, like classic sort of moves. And they would have it's been made fun of in a lot of different movies and stuff. Um, it was just a style of the time and it was much beloved. But now it looks absolutely ridiculous. So I have a feeling that's probably why they didn't do it. Hmm. Just a guess. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen it too. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel we we didn't maybe we didn't need to uh, see the entire thing, but we could have seen a little bit of it. We could have seen them planning it, talking about it. Um, it's just it was just another component to the whole movement. These tableaus that mm-hmm. were staged in different places at different times. Like we, that was something they could have done. Um, pre- after they were imprisoned, Lucy Burns was actually um, she received the force feeding too. We haven't eaten. We have been sitting here for hours. We need food. You'll eat when it's time to eat. You'll bed down when it's time to bed down. Now you bed down. Matron. We are not guilty of any crime. We're political prisoners. Now, I want these women fed and given pen and paper to write to their families. And we want our own clothes back. Now. Now, you bed down. What are you you doing? You're hurting me. you find it weird how they had nosebleeds at one point and it was maybe not explained why they were bleeding from the nose um, yeah i thought they were bleeding from every you know from all over i thought it was from the tube you know messing them up what was it no it was from the tube but i don't think they showed lucy getting force fed but they force fed her through the nose yeah i read yeah. that wikipedia through the nostril yeah yeah um, hence the nosebleeds, uh, but they didn't show it. They they just imp- implied in the movie that Alice Paul was the only one getting the treatment, but Lucy Burns as well uh, did as well. Uh, she served more jail more jail time than any other suffragette in America. She was arrested in June 1917, sentenced to three days. Arrested in September 1917, arre- uh, sentenced to 60 days. Arrested November 10th 1917, sentenced to six months. Arrested in January 1919 and served one one three-day and two five-day sentences. In October 1917, declaring their status as political prisoners, Burns and 13 other suffragists initiated a hunger strike at at the Occoquan workhouse to protest the unjust treatment of Alice Paul. Her strike lasted almost three weeks before she was force-fed. On November 15, 1917, Burns was in Occoquan during the Night of Terror. When she was beaten for calling out to the other inmates and her arms were handcuffed above her head in her prison cell. After her release in 1919, she served as the manager of the prison special speaking tour to bring attention to the plight of imprisoned suffragists. The prison special tour helped create a groundswell of local support for the ratification effort that began in the States a few months later. So there was a whole tour after she got out of prison where she spoke about the treatment in prison and what other suffragists who were in prison, you know, how they were being treated. So, I mean, that could have been the 20 minutes rather than, you know, learning to drive a car and masturbating. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Because her part in it, you could figure it out. I mean, because she was bleeding and stuff, you figure that, oh, when they dumped her in the 
in the jail cell that they had probably been force feeding her as well. But it was a probably. And like you say, and, and just in general, I guess they felt like you couldn't have two suffragettes that were, you know, really memorable. You had to have only one and a sidekick. Yeah. For story purposes. Yeah. But, I was, I was really disappointed by the lack of Vera Farmiga. <laughs> mm, yeah. But what she did, she was great. in. yeah, she sung a song. She smiled. Yeah. She had pretty eyes. I love her. <laughs> She's adorable. There were a lot of good performances. She, and she had one of my favorite lines where she says, a vote is a fire escape. You know, you think yeah. of it as something that's not like so ephemeral. Like what is, a, what yeah. is a vote? What does it matter? And she's like, well, because if you could vote, you can mandate that your workplace is safe. Hey, there's mm-hmm. a thing. There's a thing that I could put into action. Suddenly it's given substance. And then I thought that was a great line and that was a great scene. Yeah, that was. I wrote that down as a matter of fact. I think a thousand women marching means more than 10,000 signatures on a piece of paper. Suffrage is not a dead issue. It's us. It's you. It's living, breathing women. We're not just a petition that can be crumbled up and tossed away. And this is what marching does. Marching shows the politicians that we women are united in our demand for political... Show me a raise. Screw the politicians. (laughs) Go ahead if you think it'll help. Now, there's... 146 women burned to death in a factory fire last month. Where's your fire escape? Laws are made by elected officials. A fire escape can be required by law. A vote is a fire escape. We take Sunday off. To la-di-da for you, we get fired on Monday. You have children, missus? They don't eat ballots. Go ahead, shut your head off. The ruling class are those who have a voice, and that voice is a vote. No one hears you. Votes for women. The parade's gonna happen, and, uh... Please. Please, would you like one? The more the merrier. Anyone? Vote is a fire escape. No, a vote is a fire escape. Not your heart the street. That's right. A vote, a vote is a fire escape. Not just a business. Business. Your heart the street. Mrs. Venslavska. Rouge. Alice Paul. Now give me the rest, college girl. I felt like Margot Martindale was underused. She just had a couple scenes with uh, where she was like Angelica Houston, Houston's like associate. But mm. she was she's been so good in all the previous seasons of The Americans. Like the woman is an amazing actress, and she gets like one line of dialogue, if that. Like that's a waste. Yeah. Uh, Lois Smith was kind of a waste, um, and she's awesome. I mean, this is there this may- is a great cast. Yeah, there may have been some people who took small roles just to because of the subject matter. I can see it, yeah. Um, but it's it's unfortunate that they and they do this with historical fiction or you know historical semi documentary based on historical event things. They'll do exactly what you're talking about. They'll invent some minor storyline to make sure there's a love interest or something like that that they can hang on to, and then they'll ignore really interesting stuff that really did happen. That's in many cases more interesting than the stuff they put on the screen. Yeah. It's a bunch of stories like that. Most recently, that P.T. Barnum movie. 
whatever I didn't it's called. See it. Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah. The um oh that one of the Scottish guy with Liam Neeson years and years ago. Rob Roy. Um, Rob Roy. I remember like we were when we were in Scotland reading about Rob Roy, and it's like, whoa, this is a you know the 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 real guy. At least the stories that have come down about him are just really, really. I mean, what a character! And it's like, why didn't you put any of that stuff in this movie? Mm. It's like I want to see this story. <laughs> no. I enjoyed that movie, but. There was better stuff. Yeah, I feel like you you can tell your fictionalized movie after you release a truthful one. <laughs> yeah, you almost feel that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't mind people creating fiction in the margins of history if, as long as it's very clear that that's what they're doing, and we have something Unfor- to ballast that. Unfortunately, uh, especially in the United States, uh, there's usually not much to balance fictional fictionalized history. I can't believe they let the warden from the Shawshank become the president. <laughs> he moved up in the world. Why was the why was all the shushing necessary in the silent movie? What are you being distracted from? You can <laughs> the uh, soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, think... I, I thought that was weird too. I was I was like is that true to well, life like how well, you how... can't focus on on the movie yeah. if people are talking. But yeah. I mean, but that's it looks what like... I was... It looks so much like a modern uh, movie showing. I was like, is that true to life? Was it like back in 19... Like the popcorn and everything? 12, yeah, was, yeah. The theater looked modern and everything. Yeah. Well, they they did have snacks and stuff, but I think um, I think uh, hard-boiled eggs were really big as... Uh, oh, what? no. That's strange. Yeah. yeah, in theaters, too. I think it was like... It was not the food that we're used to thinking of. It's a protein but, snack at the movies. <laughs> but they did have, yeah, they did have snacks. I'm trying to remember what else they used to have. Carol, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> this is from the Smithsonian Magazine. After popcorn made its way to the eastern part of North America, it spread rapidly. Eaters found the act of popping corn wildly entertaining. <laughs> and by 1848... Popcorn, the snack food, was prevalent enough to be included in the Dictionary of Americanisms. So they don't talk about other snacks? This is just about the history Pop- of why we eat popcorn at the movies. So, I'm really interested so when in did hearing it start? about movie snacks now. Um, it says here, in the, mid, in the mid-1930s, the movie theater business started to go what? under, but those that began serving popcorn and other snacks survived. It's the same as today. Well, you make your money on snacks. This is like, yeah, but this is way before that. That must be anachronistic popcorn. It was definitely popcorn she was eating, not anything else? Yep. Yeah, it was popcorn. It was like a little Mm. bag, like a little paper bag of popcorn. Well, 1848 is when they found the idea wildly entertaining. It came from the Native Americans, They should have been eating boiled eggs, (laughs) goddammit. That's what I um, thought was that came from the Native Americans. Um, I'm looking for what the snacks were in movies. Was that in 19... um, um let me find 1912 it. to 1918 somewhere in there yeah i'll say 1916 oh, come on what is the server not found business probably i mean it could have been somewhere as early as 1912 because i don't have another timestamp until after that scene and i wrote them all down okay maybe say 1914 i wonder if we're around 1914 1914 i'm gonna type it into 1914 movie snacks 
A history of movie theater snacks in America from Bon Appetit. Oh, yeah, I see it here. It may have just been in theaters, as in... Um, so, Goober's... In Vaudeville and Goober's stuff. Goober's 1925, Milk Duds 1926, Raisinets 27, and The Bob White 1922, but they don't go, like, before that. Sour Patch Kids in the 70s. Easy to store, cheap to produce, easy to transport. There's a there's a person who works in my office who has several times said that the new movie theater near our workplace has like great food because it's one of those like let's put a restaurant and bar in the movie theater. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's um one of the movie theaters that you know has food and stuff. Uh, I finally went to um last year or something. That's nice. Mm. Maybe they would have eaten tasty cakes. Individual chocolate, individual wrapped chocolate tasty cakes were sold in 1914. Huh. Uh, the Oreo was introduced in 1912. Sold in glass lidded jars for 25 cents a pound. Lifesavers peppermint candies. Though their signature hold did not appear until 1925. Okay. Apparently, apparently popcorn, was, they banned popcorn in the theater at one time because it was too loud. Well, there you have it. As far as being distracting, yeah. but that may have been once sound came in. But uh, to answer your original question, I mean, I think if I was trying to watch a movie and people were having conversations around me, even if it was a silent movie, I would still be annoyed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because it it really like okay, here we go. When I've been watching ballet, and you know the music is plenty loud enough that and all of that. I remember one time when I was watching a ballet and it was just, oh, it was just such an amazingly wonderful ballet. And everybody was like so into it. It was at Lincoln Center in the city. And uh, this one woman, it's like she wanted to like make herself known by applauding at inappropriate times as loud as possible. And she kept going like, oh, yeah. And all of this Ugh. stuff in the middle. Of stuff. Shut up, lady! You told exactly. her. You told her to shut up. Yes, I, I hope. I found. I found <laughs> something about popcorn. It says here, back in the silent era of movies, people dressed to the nines to see films on the big screen. They were also a highbrow medium, as literacy wasn't nearly as high around the turn of the twentieth century. An audience needed to be able to read to really enjoy silent films. However, sound was ushered in. Movies became a medium for the masses, and with that, the newfound era of movie going came snacks. Lots and lots of snacks, including popcorn. But at first, that popcorn wasn't even sold by the theaters. According to the Smithsonian Mag, popcorn was a cheap snack that could still be afforded by the masses during the Great Depression. However, most theaters didn't have the ventilation required to pop its own snacks. So vendors would sell popcorns on the streets as people flocked to the theater. And theaters would charge the vendors a fee for lobby privileges, essentially selling to the patrons of the theater. Mm, nice. But that yeah. was all after this. Trap me in yeah, that well, poorly ventilated space. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen before. <laughs> <laughs> they're saying, yeah, they're saying in this one that I'm looking at that uh, that five cent silent movies and live accompaniment of a piano or organ player, but no food. Instead, patrons purchased food and drinks from nearby restaurants and boldly carried their stash in with them. A brazen yeah. violation of today's ubiquitous no outside food or drink rules. What year was that? Yes. Theaters, and that was um, during the early 1900s. Mm. You should try that today. Take food in from outside and be like, "What's well, what they did in the 1900s?" I, I'm I outraged. Always, I always hide food in my purse. 
<laughs> I've got this great coat with really big <laughs> pockets. Mm. Everybody does it. <laughs> I lose stuff in those pockets all the time. I mean, they need to come in handy sometimes, you know? Yes, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Theaters even allowed self-employed vendors to roam the cinema selling sweets and salty wares like popcorn and peanuts. So I guess that would be kind of like it, but like they do at baseball stadiums, you know, yeah. peanuts, peanuts, get your peanuts here. Hopefully not like, like during intermission or before the movie starts or something, not like during a key during scene. During the movie. Maybe they do though. <laughs> With- I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of them allowed it during the movie because they were, they just, Nobody thought that they were art. Well, then you know why I mean? is that guy shushing? Well, because that guy actually wanted to enjoy the movie. I think that guy is a chauvinist. And this is just <laughs> a scene showing that men are trying to keep those women down. That's right. That's right. Why are there females talking here? They shouldn't even be allowed in the movies. Shouldn't they be home in the kitchen? Why are there femoids here? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the theater's full of incels. <laughs> Stupid femoids. There are, it may be, many months of fiery sacrifice and trials ahead of us. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars. We shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts. Now, we shall fight for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government. Wilson's going to fight for their rights? No, no, he's not going to fight. He's going to send men to fight the Kaiser for him. He's going to stay right here and tip his hat to all the American women standing at his gate. There won't be any women standing at his gate. What? We can't picket a wartime president. Yeah, why the hell not? It's treason, that's why. Treason is betraying your country. Petitioning is not treason. At worst, it's just rude. Give it any name you want. The war changes everything. This is not our war. Women have husbands. Women have sons. No one is going to thank us if we all slink off to roll bandages. Not about being thanked. This is my country, and if our soldiers need bandages, I'm rolling bandages. Roll them on the picket line. Look, we kicked ourselves when we dropped the cause during the Civil War. And what happened? Congress gave Negro men the vote and told yes. women to wait their turn, right? And we're still waiting. Tell me to be there, and I will. Be there. Right? Right? Alice Teller. Vanessa said there was nothing more important than ending a war. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I will post Harold's feedback in Skype. Mel, would you read this for us? Yeah, I will. I only watched the first hour of this movie, and what I saw was frustratingly uneven. My attention went in and out. There were moments where they did a good job of demonstrating someone's character. Like how the character played by Hilary Swank has a coin toss with her friend over who gets to buy a hat that they each want. But after losing out, after one scene, we see that she is the one wearing the hat because she gets what she wants. But moments like that were surrounded by other scenes that felt flat. Like poor Inez pleading not to have to give any more speeches because she isn't feeling well. Followed up by almost immediately by the inevitable scene of Inez passing out while making an allegedly (laughs) roused. 
allegedly rousing speech. <laughs> I mean, why are we supposed to care about Inez, who has been a minor character so far? Or for that matter, about Hilary Swank's slowly developing and boring relationship with a political cartoonist. I did like Hilary Swank as the lead, and Frances O'Connor as her friend. The choice to use modern music for several montages was jarring. I interpreted it as a shorthand to get us to reimagine these women as something other than the turn-of-the-century types that they actually were, and to instead think of them as modern types. Time traveled into the oppressive patriarchal society of 1912. I can see why they did go for that, but it just didn't work for me. It just called too much attention to itself. Also, those women were not just like modern women. They were of their own time and place. The same women who fought for the right to vote also fought for prohibition. It was a big part of their platform, for many reasons that I won't go into here. But it wasn't mentioned anywhere that I noticed in the first hour. I've come to the conclusion that it is difficult to do these historical dramas. We all know how history turned out. Women got the right to vote. Men landed on the moon. Uh, The U.S. military was not prepared to deal with an Iraqi insurgency or to govern the country after Saddam was ousted, etc. It's like all of our greatest hits. (laughs) Yes, yes. If you want these projects to work, you need to have a hook, usually an interesting character or dynamic, like John Adams did, trying to deal with his family, the British, and the other founding fathers. Otherwise, if your purpose is just to celebrate a difficult struggle and victory, I think you are better off doing... Uh, documentary with historians telling good anecdotes and narrators reading participants' diaries. A quick Google search, and I see that PBS has done a few on this topic, including Ken Burns's Not For Ourselves Alone, the story of Elizabeth Cady? Katie? Katie. Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and One Woman, One Vote by Ruth Pollock. If I wanted to do a family watch about women's struggle to gain the right to vote, I'm far more likely to check them out to, than to see the final hour of Iron Jawed Women. Thanks, Harold. <laughs> I, tend, I tend to agree with that. I like a good documentary. Yeah. It's they a, are good. The one is a good documentary. The first one, I'm pretty sure I saw that one. To quote the really Titus Andromeda on, uh, in the new season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, documentaries are the books of movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's okay. Uh, I like a good documentary, the too. But the non-fiction books. <laughs> I, I well, don't think like, that this particular part of, of the suffrage movement has been talked about or dramatized. Not like I mean, everybody knows Susan B. Anthony, but do you ever hear anyone talk about Alice Paul or Lucy Burns? I didn't know who they were. No. And, and I didn't know who they were until I saw this movie. Like, Even though the movie has its flaws, it's still put in my face, thanks to this awesome cast, yeah. this important mm-hmm. information. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just read a book that was a um, last year for my seventh grader when I was dealing with my seventh grade. Um, they were reading a book that touched on on this whole thing and had a fictional um, fictional girl in who got involved with the movement and they do, it dovetailed into this story. Um, near the very end there, when the legislator got the, um, uh, the telegraph from his mother. Yeah, that was great. Um, was that real? Yeah. Did that really happen? I yeah. love that. Okay. I'm pretty sure that really happened because it happened in the other story I was reading too. Okay. So it usually. Was, it was probably yeah. like, it's probably like, you better vote for this or else I'm kicking you out of the house finally. <laughs> 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 it was just so perfectly timed. Like, it was, like, comedic timing, like, at its finest right there. Yeah. 
<laughs> Why don't we get a movie about that lady? She, she's the one who saved it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty... As a matter of fact... What if, uh, what if Alice Paul had sent the letter? <laughs> this is your mother. This is your mother speaking. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, the... Uh, so there were a few... Like that, that uh, quote that we were looking at before, votes uh, not... In women, courage is often mistaken for insanity. That, I mean, it's indicated in a few different places that that was attributed to a psychiatrist examining uh, Alice Paul, but they did not say the name of the psychiatrist, so I'm still a little um, little suspicious (laughs) Mm. of it. But, uh, you know, there's those those moments that, uh, that kind of are the keystones that you see in a lot of different things. And that one with the legislator um, having the red rose and having had the the yellow rose the night before and all of that, that's that whole thing is in the book that I was reading last year. And I can't remember the name of the book um, for my seventh grade English class. Um, And did they enjoy the book? um, Yeah, actually a lot of them did. Uh, the um and it it basically was a young girl who was you know kind of one of the foot soldiers in the suffragette movement and um was thrown into that particular part of the thing where they were trying to get that legislature that legislator and other legislators to vote on it and they only had a certain amount of time and they were trying to you know and it was more concentrated on that very little local piece of that puzzle, which was cool. Harold mentioned uh, Inez, who gave a speech and then collapsed. So I just wanted to read a little bit about Inez Mulholland. She was a suffragist, a suffragist labor lawyer, World War I correspondent, public speaker who greatly influenced the women's movement in America. She was active in the National Women's Party and a key participant in the 1913 Women's Suffrage Procession. In 1916, she went on a tour in the West, speaking for women's rights as a member of the National Women's Party. She undertook the tour despite suffering from uh, pernicious anemia and despite the uh, warnings of her family who were concerned about her deteriorating health. um, She went on the tour anyway. And then October 22nd, 1916, she collapsed in the middle of a speech in Los Angeles, California, Blanchard Hall. She was rushed to Good Samaritan Hospital despite repeated blood, blood transfusions. She died on November 25th, 1916. Her last public words were, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Wow. Um, is it, I thought anemia was something you were born with. Uh, not necessarily, but it certainly can be. There's, there's a few different kinds. I kind of got educated on it a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's like a whole genetic thing where um, if you have it, you, your body doesn't process iron right so it doesn't matter how much iron you take in it never quite gets your blood the way it should and but there's also anemia that can be caused by um how you're eating or other things and and women of childbearing years um particularly um they have to be careful of it i found a picture by the way of that event that uh Oh, I have a whole bunch of photos. I'll send yeah. you. I'll send you guys the link right now. Yeah, I'll I put couldn't them all in uh, document. And I couldn't link it, so it's in the Skype. We need to request access. We will receive you an do. email. Oh, when oh our hold on, hold a- on. Uh, oh, it might be from my email, maybe. No, no, no. no. I just need to 
here we go. I just got to change the sharing permissions of this. And this to the, the images will be in the in my research notes, which um, I post on the website, hoopalcast.com. You go to the description of the podcast installment, you click on res- resources, and it takes you to my document where I have my quotes that I've read during this and my links to my sources. This is like what I used to do for every episode of Deadwood, so it really took me back in time. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these hats. Look at these hats. Yeah. There you go. That's crazy, crazy set of hats. And I love the horse. Yeah, that's a Nez on that's the horse. Crazy. It's crazy how how exact the banners and everything. Like yeah, the Kaiser the Wilson, set. when they called him Kaiser Wilson. Mm-hmm. How they used his own quotes against him. I, lo- I love that. Like The guy love was that. like, oh, we could say these are tra- treasonous words. Like Those are the president's words. <laughs> yeah, dumb, dumb. yeah. I love that she was burning them too. She was just like reading them and burning them. I believe the might of America is the sincere love of its people for the freedom of mankind. Woodrow Wilson, March 6, 1915. We have forgotten the history of our country if we have forgotten how to agitate when it is necessary. Woodrow Wilson, September 8, 1916. Liberty is a fierce and intractable thing to which no bounds ought to be set. Woodrow Wilson, a message to Congress. There is nothing in liberty unless it is translated into definite action. July 4th, 1914, Woodrow Wilson. That's the whole good part of the movie. Yeah, I know. It was really good. And and I liked um, Inez saying to... She didn't. No, she didn't confide her illness in Alice, but she said, "I was I was in Europe, and if you saw the war that I saw, you would think that this is a low priority too. Like war is, it's devastating. Like you have no idea. You you're not there. It's devastating. Yeah. And then it was really a bone of contention for a lot of a lot of women. Like they quit the organization when they still picketed the White House." Because they just felt yeah. like it wasn't appropriate. As though a person can't care about two things at once. Yeah. Well, women can't vote because then they can't, you know, uh, they can't prioritize their other responsibilities like children and stuff. Because voting heard, takes what if you all heard, of them. Oh, you I gotta, see. It's too much of a distraction. you got to give birth to more soldiers. Yeah. You know, that's... Yeah. I mean, there's two things that they always say about those. One is, you know, what they were saying that um, once your country is at war, you're not allowed to protest anything because then you're not being patriotic. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the one thing that they always say. And mm-hmm. the other thing that women are told all the time is um, you need to concentrate on more important things. Your, you know, your petty concerns about yourself are not as important as, you know, larger things that are happening. You need to concentrate on more important things. And mm-hmm. that is something that you see all the time. And you see it, I used to see it in fandom. People mm-hmm. would, people would point out something 
you know, really sexist in a TV show or something that they liked. But, you know, hey, this is um, this is a sexist, you know, problem. And they were told, well, you know, you need to concentrate on, you know, you're being petty. There's more important things in life than this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know what? It's always more. Somebody else is always supposed to be more important to to women than themselves. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so as a result, everything, you know, just gets pushed back. It's it's a tactic that's used. Yes. And it's women buy exactly it. right. It's a tactic. Just wait yeah. a little longer. People are just, yeah. la- you know, they're they're too lazy to take the time to try and respect everyone. So they just give excuses. <laughs> and to Matt's earlier quote, when you give up your privilege, you feel like you're oppressed. Mm-hmm. And then they spin and- it. And even the president in his um, speech, like he sort of is like, women are the, the angels of our better nature. They're, we need their moral superiority to temper us or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, that's patronizing. Oh, oh yeah. And, yeah. and of course, he takes, like, suddenly he has this very, like, he really believes in what he's saying. Uh, it's all his idea, guys, this amendment. It's, it's really, it's coming mm-hmm. from him. He was yep. not influenced by those women at all. Those radicals who were less radical than they were in Britain. So Yeah. And, you know, when um, uh, something that you said earlier, but I don't remember what it was now. Never mind. You know, you don't like those women um, p- protesting outside the White House for the right to vote during wartime? Quickly pass that amendment. They don't have to be there. Do you think they want to be there? Well, they want to be there, but they would probably rather just have the vote. So can we just have that, please? Just do it. Oh, you don't really mean what you say. Oh, I get it. Yeah. It's... Oh, I don't remember what it was. It was um, when you were talking about um, people needing... Here, by the way, I'm putting in a, a link. I don't know if it'll work or not to... Um, picture of um rather than the like the event where that where people were um dancing and stuff mm-hmm. that you're talking that you wished was in the movie um the uh it admittedly women having the right to vote did directly affect the men in this country as opposed to gay marriage which has pretty much no effect on anybody except people getting married um because women could vote to have equal rights to men and that affected things that meant women could sit on a jury that meant women could lobby to get um financial laws changed which um or to get equal rights so that their husbands couldn't commit them um to insane asylums without cause or you know and other such things that men couldn't just take away all of a woman's money you know, legally. Um, and that did have a direct effect on men, admittedly. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is awesome. Um, uh, community reenacts 1913 women's suffrage march. This oh, wow. From That's October. much better than reenacting the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just, saw, we just saw a meme that somebody posted where it was like a picture of, uh, of people like in the Civil War fighting. And they're like, God, this is terrible. The, the, mo- the most terrible thing I've ever experienced. I hope no one reenacts this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Like, it's why? like, yeah, why would you want to reenact such a horrible, horrible event? Yeah, this <laughs> women's march is much better to reenact. <laughs> well, it's just, it's kind of more symbolic, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Here, I'll, I will show a photo of that, of that reenactment. Oh, hmm. that's cool. In. They need, like, oh, yeah, they got the sashes and everything. 
They need more stars. Do they have a woman <laughs> on a horse? Gotta have that woman on a horse. They need a woman on a horse. Everybody needs a woman on a horse. Yeah. I'm Dr. White, Alice. The district commissioner asked me to speak with you. Do you know where you are? District Prison Hospital. The mental ward. You refuse to eat. Can you tell me why? The hunger strike was a tradition in old Ireland. You starve yourself on someone's doorstep until restitution is made. And justice is done. Doesn't sound like a very effective method. A stinking corpse on your doorstep? What will the neighbors say? So you stand on the president's doorstep. He's treated you very badly, hasn't he? It's the law that treats women badly. But you pick at President Wilson. He's the one who put you here. We pick at the office of the presidency. It has nothing to do with Mr. Wilson and everything to do with the position he holds. But he's responsible for your treatment here. I believe I was sent here by a district commissioner. You call yourself a suffragist? Tell me about your cause. Just talk freely. Explain yourself. Do you understand the question? You asked me to explain myself. I just wonder what needs to be explained. It should be very clear. Look into your own heart. I swear to you, mine's no different. You want a place in the trades and professions where you can earn your bread. So do I. You want some means of self-expression. Some way of satisfying your own personal ambitions. So do I. You want a voice in the government under which you live. So do I. Unless anyone has any other notes or anything, we could do ratings. I think we covered everything. Um, yeah. I wrote down, oh, they shouldn't have fed her eggs. What if she's vegan? <laughs> um, they referenced Susan yeah, B. Anthony's desk. Uh, this reminded me of this Saturday Night Live sketch where these uh, women go to Susan B. Anthony's house and they conjure up the ghost of Susan B. Anthony. And uh, But then they're like, oh, it's so great to meet you. And then they go about their lives like, oh, should we like take a taxi home or like whatever? And then and Susan B. Anthony is like, D- ladies, did you see my desk? This is where I wrote all my notes and letters. And they're like, that's great, Susan. Ugh. Just shut up about your desk. I'll have to post that in the uh, Facebook group. Um I think we got everything. Yeah, I would say so. Okay, Matt, you can go first. For rating? For ratings. Um, I liked parts of it and other parts I didn't like. Basically, I liked what I liked the content. I just didn't like how they served it up to us <laughs> or how it was stitched together. Um, so, yeah, I basically already said why I didn't like it. I'm going to give it a 6.5 out of 10 hoses up my nose. <laughs> Okay. Who next? Uh, I can go, I guess. Yeah, pretty much the same. I don't know. It's uh, like I like the performances for the most part. I like the I like the chemistry between 
Hilary Swank and her friend there. I thought they were kind of sweet together. Um, Angelica Houston did not deserve an award. You know, for... no, but I did. I did like that in the end they all kind of came together. Like mm-hmm. the older women and the younger women, they kind of ended up supporting each other, even though they didn't at all throughout yeah. the entire movie. She like literally gives up her seat for the next generation. Yeah, which is which is nice. It was, you know, a, it's it was nice. a nice act. But uh, I also read, like, I read mixed things about that because it certainly seemed like a lot of people said that they didn't have this big schism that they just sort of like amicably created a new organization and that they weren't that, um, Carrie cat, Carrie Chapman cat. Um, even though she was against like the marching at the beginning, like maybe she, she came around, like she didn't really come down on them for how they collected their donations and stuff, the way that the movie made it seem. So there could have been some fictionalization there to create conflict. I can understand ambivalence if there was like bricks being thrown in like London or whatever, but yeah. anyways. Anyways. Yeah. But yeah, I did uh I did enjoy the last part of the movie the best, just like everybody else. Basically the the whole like, you know, nine early nineteen hundreds Orange is the New Black. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was that uh what was that matron lady? What was she doing? Was she dropping uh she pieces was, of paper and she pencils was help, for them? them out. She was like giving them paper and pencils so they could write notes that she was going to smuggle out. Was that what was happening? Yeah, I think pretty much. Okay. That she was pretty much won over to their side. Mm. You figure she was a career woman. Yeah. Mm. And uh, she just reminded me of, of the ladies in uh, what you call it, Handmaiden's Tale. Oh, the. Uh, yeah, the, she was a real Aunt yeah. Lydia type. Yeah, yeah. she was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah very much so. But she was, like, actually helping them in the end, so, yeah. Anyways. Some of the accounts so, I read said that the murderers were incarcerated there were, like, treated better than these women. Yeah. And how they would, like, they would be force-feeding one of them and saying, you know, all your other friends have quit the hunger strike. You're the last one. You're the holdout. It's okay to stop. And they know that, and they knew, they were smart enough to know that that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. They're always trying to break them, put put worms in their food, you know? Wow. Do things to them to to break them, and it's just oh, it's so disgusting. It's gross. Now, now this biography thing that I'm reading right now about uh, Carrie Chapman Cat um, has an interesting point that is kind of glossed over in this movie. It says uh, she took over the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1900 and came up with the winning plan that helped pass the 19th Amendment in 1920, and then she died in 1947. Because she had been working on states. So, in a way, having those states um, have suffrage laws made it much more likely to be able to pass a constitutional amendment the more states you had that already had con- uh, suffrage laws so women could vote. Did you, uh, did you guys... All the, the mention of suffrage reminds me of this. I can't remember what show it was. It may have been the man show or something, but I think it was Jimmy Kimmel in some form or other going out and uh, putting up um, like a booth and saying like end women's suffrage and stuff like he was trying to get signatures to end women's suffrage. And he got mm-hmm. so many signatures from women and stuff because they had no idea what it was. And the right. word suffrage sounds bad. So it sounds you know, like suffering. suffering. Yeah, no, there's no. just like the occasional. Right woman would be like, don't sign that. That's your right to vote. And like, there's just so many clueless people. Ugh. Right, right. 
Yeah. When it comes to vocabulary, people, it's amazing how little people. Well, vocabulary no. and history. I mean, we've talked about... Yeah. Um, yeah, you put the two together. We've talked about the labor movement on this podcast back when we covered Deadwood, because a lot of Deadwood had to do with like miners and organizing against Hearst. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people in this country don't know the labor, what the labor movement was about. No. They, they just don't know. No. I mean, like, yeah, we have our own problems today, but history repeats itself. And how do we get out of, like, where we are, how do we orient mm-hmm. ourselves to get out if, if we don't have mm-hmm. information and, and history and knowledge to, to write ourselves? Like, it's really sad. But we've interrupted Mel like a hundred times. She's trying to give her a rating. <laughs> Sorry, Mel. Seven out of ten telegrams from your mother. <laughs> 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 because, you know, it's, you know, it should... It should make you change your vote for sure if your mom telegrams you. <laughs> I just want to know what he said. Or what she, she said. said. What she yeah. said. She probably she... used his full name, spelled it out. Oh, yes. Yeah. His whole entire name. Middle name included. Yeah. You what... do the, the right thing, blank, blank, blank. <laughs> whatever his name was. No TV for you tonight if you. <laughs> or whatever. I'm not going to make you popcorn when you get home. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it back around. We'll, we'll you will be won't keeping get to this. Tire with a stick. <laughs> tire with a stick. Let's see. I just came up with the mother who saved suffrage, passing the Nineteenth Amendment. I assume that it will be about her. Nice. I'm glad. See, at least this movie got a lot right. Mm-hmm. There's there's stuff I wrote down. Like, did that really happen? Like the unfurling of the banner uh, in front of in like Congress, or whatever. Like, yes, that happened. The silent sentinels outside of the the, ga- the gates. Yes, that happened. The hunger strike happened. The parade happened. Was there, was there really Evanescence playing during the the parade back then? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it was. Oh my God, Evanescence! <laughs> <laughs> Evanescence traveled back in time. Yeah. Uh, um, the uh, there were some things that they that if you were looking for them, you saw them. But they were were not very obvious, and they were just like barely touched on. Um, you know, the um, the uh, black suffragette was was one of the more obvious ones. But there was there was definitely an elitist um, upper class women had the time and the resources to be able to fight this fight, and that's one of the reasons that that. You know, votes are fire escapes. Um, was kind of important right at the beginning to establish that this woman, who was you know part of the elite, really could talk to somebody whose concerns were day to day, needing to put food on the table. So, and you know, there were there's so much to this story. It's really hard to do in two hours anyway. But let's see. Uh, it says minutes after Tennessee ratified the Nineteenth Amendment essentially ending American women's decade-long quest for the right to vote, a young man with a red rose pinned to his lapel fled to the attic of the state capitol and camped out there until the maddening crowds downstairs dispersed. Some say he crept to a third-floor ledge to escape an angry mob of anti-suffragette lawyers threatening to rough him up. The date was August 18, 1920, and the man was Harry Byrne, the 24-year-old representative from East Tennessee who two years earlier had become the youngest member of the state legislature. So... He was the one that um, cast that vote that he was not expected to cast. Hmm. Let's see. What, did they tell us what was in the thing here? These 
Okay. Yes. It says here that um, Kat wrote in her 1923 book, he also invoked, so he's, she's talking about Burns, he also invoked the fury of his red rose carrying peers while presumably avoiding that of his mother, which may very well have been the more daunting of the two. So I'm not sure that. Ah, uh, here we go. Yeah. Here's what she said. Um, she said, be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. <laughs> That's kind of... She also wrote, hurrah <laughs> and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood, but have not noticed anything yet. <laughs> this, I don't know if this would have convinced anyone. Yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not that convincing. Be a good it's boy. Not, uh, yay, do it. Like it should have been, I would be deeply disappointed if you didn't, because it's this personal to me. I wanted it to be like, you know, a note that's like, just hits you right in the heart. You know, like in The Simpsons, you are Lisa Simpson. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that kind of note, yeah. But, you know, the thing is that you and I might look at it and say, well, this doesn't seem like much of a note. He might know his mother well enough to know. Yeah. Oh, He's a what, real you know mama's I mean? boy. Well, no, it's not that. It's that it's like, for instance, some parents, you know, it's like my brother always said, if my dad asked him to do something, he stopped what he was doing and he did it. Why? Because one time he didn't. And, you know, my dad was just like, hey, could you come help me? Okay. All right. And he was reading his book and he took his time about it. And then he left and it's like, hey, can you come help me? And he went out and he found my dad hanging from a tree by his belt that he'd been, you know, he'd been cutting limbs and stuff and he'd fallen off a ladder and he was hanging by the tree by his belt. But, you know, he doesn't yell about it or anything. He just like, Hey, can you help me? She might've been somebody who didn't usually say anything about it. And when she says vote for suffrage, don't keep them, you know, and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's like, Whoa, mom is serious here. Maybe her mother just, or maybe his mother just never wrote him anything ever, and this was his first letter, and that was why it was so serious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also the little line, I've been watching to see how you stood but have not noticed anything yet, could be a real, like, um, Shaming? are you being a coward? Yeah. Mm. I raised you better than that. Uh-huh. Yeah, why are you being quiet? Are you, are you being, especially since this guy apparently had been avoiding anything um and then at the last minute came out with the red rose i think he had a yellow rose the night before so he was being namby pamby yeah just pick a rose and go with it yeah well he did eventually to pick the red one and then his mom said hey yeah knock it off kid guys check out the link that matt just posted in the skype (laughs) women in the past were modest and had more respect for themselves this is a quote in quotes and then it, there's a picture of some some lady with uh, her dress and one boob popping out of her dress. And it says, here's Agnes Sorel, who had her gowns tailored to expose her favorite boob in the 1440s. <laughs> <laughs> so modest. <laughs> uh. <laughs> What's your rating, Carol? Oh, um, I'm going to go with um, 7.5. Um, Yellow Rose is out of 10. Okay. I liked it more than you guys. I love the cast. Uh, without this movie, I wouldn't know who these people were. I think it's important to know who they were. I, I wish that 
It had focused more on their political activities with just a little more depth and excluded like the fictional romance. It to me that added nothing. It just wasted time, though it did give us a bathtub masturbation scene. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to deduct half a point for the romance. Half a point because the editing was too frenzied and 90s, and particularly at the beginning of the first half of the movie. And then another half a point because Molly Parker deserved to have her name ahead of the title, not after it. So I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10 fire escapes. <laughs> and that's it. That was that. Average is out to yeah. 7.38. That's decent. It's good. It's, it was yeah, fine. I mean, I, I thought it was a good movie. Yeah. Um, but it could have been better. It could have been better, could've exactly. Been better. And the movie, yeah. Yeah. And there was some, and it was a great cast. And the yeah, uh, director, director's name is Katia Von Garnier. She hasn't done anything else except she directed a few movies about young girls and horses. <laughs> huh. Okay. Next time on the podcast, we will be doing another TV movie. I think that that one might be better. I think that's better than this. Less important, but better made. Uh, and that's Grey Gardens, starring Jessica Lange oh. and Drew Barrymore. Oh. I've, seen, I've seen the oh. uh, the documentary. Well, part of it, I, I ooh. <laughs> we'll yeah. talk about it. Yeah, the, docu- the documentary, no. The biopic on HBO, yes, I think. Yeah, okay. But I will make available to our listeners through a super secret directory in the Facebook group, both the HBO movie and the uh, documentary, and also um, Documentary Now, which is the parody of documentaries in which Bill Hader and Fred Armisen play uh, Big, Ed- Big Edie and Little Edie. Oh my god, what? Because <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that sounds So that's next time. Okay, I look forward to it then, because I know a lot of this. As always, you can find us at hooplecast.com, go on Facebook, find our discussion group, Hooplecast. Uh, at Hooplecast is where I retweet Deadwood things, though I haven't done that in a long time. Um, send us... Email at gmail.com. Does anyone want to plug or promote anything? Not at the moment. I was no. on Yes Mother. I did a movie oh. I did a movie commentary podcast with Emily oh. and Sue for the Bates Motel TV pilot from back in the eighties. Yeah, Whoa. it was very eighties. It was, was uh, Bud oh. Bud Court and Lori Petty. What? Huh. It yeah. was a it was a weird, weird mix of uh Scooby Doo and Fantasy Island. <laughs> was it delightfully 80s or was it like it was very 80s like but delightfully so <laughs> it, it wasn't it was a really bad movie that i am really happy that we did a commentary for because we had a blast oh my god i kind of want to see it <laughs> well i have made available on youtube the the movie with our commentary underneath it so you can actually watch nice. the movie and hear us talk about it at the same time so, nice. oh wow yeah I posted it in the Hooplecast group. I did see the um, the post. Yep. In the first comment is the link to the YouTube uh, commentary slash video of the movie. So I did that recently. And yeah, I was on Calavici Fashioncast recently talking about an episode of Quantum Leap. I always like Quantum Leap. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck women's suffrage. <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. I'm but just listen, kidding. listen to your mothers. Listen to your mothers, though, because they know they know what they're talking about. <laughs> and just mother suffragettes. Mm-hmm. Yes, mother. Do you think Norman Bates is like a? Would he be like? Because yes, mother. Yes, mother. 
Would it be a what? He would have if, changed. He would have changed his vote. Oh, he would have changed his vote definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Representative Bates. Yeah, he definitely would have yeah. voted the way his mother told him to. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Representative Bates. I find it really weird how Representative Bates like dresses as his mother like occasionally. It's that's strange. <laughs> he's a little odd. Like he's a little odd. I don't know how he keeps getting <laughs> how he how he keeps getting elected. Yeah, I don't know. That's oh, interesting. Oh my god, this is the this has like the production qualities of like Littlest Hobo. <laughs> the uh, yeah, just the, the video base. quality. Oh my god. Ah, Bud Court, so weird looking. Oh, we referenced that a couple times. The weird <laughs> thing is when it turns into a sock hop with Jason Bateman at the end. <laughs> what? Because it was a TV pilot, and it was basically two episodes pushed together, which is why it doesn't make any sense. Oh my god, the dancing! Ah! <laughs> Matt's just skipping around. Yeah, oh my god. it's worth <laughs> it's worth watching. Oh, Especially if you want to see uh, at the beginning, Robert Picardo plays the doctor. What? No way. Yeah. He doesn't, have much, he doesn't have much to do. Lori Petty's in a chicken costume. It's a whole big thing. All right. Yeah. So go check that out. I will. Yeah, I see him. That's funny. All right. Goodbye. This is Banks. She's home. Our daughters, daughters will adore us. And we'll sing and break for chorus. Well done, Sister Suffragette. Good evening, Kate and Hannah. Ellen, we had the most glorious meeting Mrs. Whitburn Allen chained herself to the wheel of the Prime Minister's carriage. You should have been there. Mrs. Banks, I would like a word. And Mrs. Ainsley, she was carried off to prison, singing and scattering pamphlets all the way. I'm glad you're home, madam. I've always given the best that's in me. Oh, thank you, Katie Nana. I always knew you were one of us. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men, Agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Cast off the shackles of yesterday, shoulder to shoulder into the fray. Our daughters' daughters will adore us, and they'll sing in grateful chorus. Well done, Sister Suffragette. Kensington to Billingsgate, one hears the restless cries from every corner of the land. Womankind arise! Political equality and equal rights with men. Take heart for Mrs. Pankhurst has been clapped in irons again. No more the meek and mild subservience we. We're fighting for our rights militantly. Never you fear! shackles of yesterday and shoulder to shoulder into the fray our daughters daughters 